When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm Head of Programming, Connor Boyle. Coming up on the podcast, Alistair Campbell. As a voice in UK politics, he's been omnipresent for the past 30 years, originally as a newspaper man, then as one of the architects of the new Labour government in the mid-1990s. In later years, he's become most well-known as one half of arguably the most successful political podcast in the UK, and yet he's never entered the political fray as an elected leader himself. He has a new book, But What Can I Do?, just out in paperback, which encourages its readers to get involved and rethink some of the more deeply ingrained ideas about politics. And recently, very recently, as in last night as I record this, he joined Josh Glancy, editor of the News Review at the Sunday Times, to discuss it all at a special sold-out Intelligence Squared event at London's Union Chapel. This conversation is in three parts, and Intelligence Squared members can get all three installments right now. If you're not a member, head over to intelligencesquared.com membership to sign up, and you'll get the extended version of Alistair and Josh's conversation, plus some pretty hefty extra content, including our podcast on AI, Power Trip, our global affairs series, The Saudi Project, ad-free listing, and updates on live events too, like the one you're about to hear. Or hit subscribe on Apple for just the audio. Now let's join Josh Glancy speaking to Alistair Campbell live on stage in London. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Intelligence Squared. Uh, I'm Josh Glancy, as you know, and I'm delighted to welcome Alistair Campbell here tonight. He doesn't really need a lot of introduction, but I'll give him one anyway. Um, as I'm sure you all know, Alistair was from 1994 to 2003. He was Tony Blair's spokesperson, chief spokesperson, and then director of communications during the new Labour years. Uh, he's also a leading advocate in the field of mental health. He's a prolific author. Uh, and most recently, uh, he's co-presenter of, is it the most successful political podcast in Britain? After the news agents, it's the most successful no. political podcast in Britain. Uh, <laughs> the rest is politics, which he obviously presents with Rory Stewart. Um, 
as I said, Alistair's written a lot of books, uh, including um, a fairly comprehensive account of the Blair years, which I'm sure you've all read. Um, and his latest book, But What Can I Do, was the number one Sunday Times bestseller. And it's really a sort of, I suppose it's a kind of creed occur for what's gone wrong in British politics, but it also attempts to be quite constructive about what, what can be done. So um, very pleased to welcome you here, Alistair. And obviously, this is a sort of quite opportune moment to have a chat about everything, really. There's a lot going on in the world. This is a very political year ahead of us. Um, so before we start, I would just you know, acknowledge there's been some quite remarkable breaking news tonight with um, the announcement that the King, King Charles, has cancer. Um, obviously, I don't really want to speculate too much about that or, or what will happen next. But it did strike me, Alistair, that there's an openness in terms of how the Buckingham Palace and the King have approached this news uh, and, and other health issues he's had recently that, that is perhaps different to how we might have approached it in the past. Mm. I, think, I think it's been very deliberate and to be welcomed, I think. I mean, it's always a very difficult balance to gauge with any senior, you know, senior public figures um, when there are health issues, how much or how little you say. Um, and I think that historically, any people in positions of authority, the instinct has been to, to conceal for as long as you can before you actually admit, as it were. Um, I thought it was interesting, for example, that when they announced, when he went into hospital recently and they announced the reason, namely this enlarged prostate, that the number of middle-aged and older men who went and checked out their prostate went stratospherically mm. through the roof. So it is a very strange form of soft power mm. um, that, that, that him making, that, the palace making that announcement. So, look, as you say, I don't know any more than this very, very brief statement that's been made tonight. But, um, and I guess, you know, the one thing we can all pretty much guarantee is that your colleagues in the other newspapers, I've got no doubt what's going to be on the front pages tomorrow. Yeah, and all week, I expect. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, we haven't had a, a monarch with a serious illness, certainly in my lifetime. I mean, if the Queen did ever have a serious illness, we, we never really knew about it. Mm. So this is quite new for, mm. for a lot of us, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So you'll have to go away tonight and think, well, how does the Sunday Times News Review do something that nobody else has done all week? Yeah, I've, I've only three calls from my editor so far this evening. Um, <laughs> so on to politics. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, the, the obvious place to start is this year's election. Um, what is more likely, would you say, this year, that Rishi Sunak somehow wins the election or that Burnley stay up in the Premier League? <laughs> <laughs> Both long shots. Um, neither are guaranteed. <laughs> um, well, that's a very, very good question. Uh, I think that, look, I, I am a professional pessimist in politics. I always have been. Mm. And I, every time I bump into members of the Shadow Cabinet or any of Keir's team, I say, just ignore the polls. When they're like this, ignore them. Um, because I, I really genuinely do worry that if you add together the sense of kind of apathy and cynicism that's around about politics anyway, um, added to which large parts of the, the media, I don't know why I went like that, large parts of the <laughs> media... stand in for all, for all yeah, media. Are, large parts of the media are going to be utterly vile about Keir Starmer between now and much of the election. And, and the election. 
It's, you know, I keep saying to Keir, it hasn't even started yet. Mm. It's going to get very, very nasty. Um, so you put that together with, I guess, you know, this is my worry about Labour. I think at the moment, there's too much about what Labour are not, as opposed to what they are. And that's fine. I think that's fine to have been there for part of this parliament. But I think to really get the sort of win that I think is there for the taking, um, I'd like to see more from Labour. But it's very, very hard to see how the Tories survive. It's not just Rishi Sunak. I mean, I feel a bit sorry for him in a way. No, I don't feel sorry. Um, <laughs> but, I, I, you know, he's followed, he's followed the two people who will be analysed in history only for which one was the worst prime minister that we ever had. Uh, Johnson and Trust. So he's, he's picked up this thing. And then we've had, but you know, honestly, I can't think of a single thing that's got better in this country in the last 13 years. So I don't understand how they could even think that they might get re-elected. But there's a little part of me that says, until people go out and vote, then whoever's in government stays in government. So they have to be voted out. And, um, well, it's a massive swing as well. I mean, it needs it's a, a historic swing. swing. It's a huge swing. We had um, Hamza Yusuf on the, po on the podcast this morning. I nearly said the newspaper. Um, and I made the point that, because he's, he's, Hamza Yusuf's now got this new line that, you know, Keir Starmer's going to win anyway. Mm -hmm. And it's a way of saying, so you can still vote SNP. But if Scotland stays as it did at the last election, Labour have to win Jacob Rees-Mogg's seat, mm. which we never did. Mm. So the swing is massive. It's bigger than Attlee. It's bigger than Blair. So it's, it's not a done deal. It's not a done deal, which is why you have to get out and vote <laughs> and persuade your friends to get out and vote as long as it's not for the Tories. So, I mean, the, the, the framework that's often put on the debate at the moment is, is this a... 92 moment or a 97 moment. I, I, you know, these are not perfect analogies. No. It's, clearly, it's a 2024 moment. But um, you were obviously there, well, very much there in 97, but also very much around in 92 as well. D d where would you put this election relative to those two, just if you were, if you were forced to? Well, look, how old are you? 18. Right. So, when were you born? Uh, 2005. There you go. It's about, it's about the future, not the past. Um, so he was born in 2005. I was in his primary school this morning. Honestly, Do you want him to answer the question? <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, what is your answer? 92 or 97? Well, the poll said 97, so I'll probably go with that one. Okay, go. he's going with 97. He's an, he's an optimist. Okay, I was in a school this morning, and it was, honestly, it, they hadn't heard of David Cameron. Wow. They didn't know who David Cameron what, was. It, I mean... He is now the foreign secretary again. Yeah, no, I know, but they, but they don't really follow politics, yeah, fair, right? Fair. So they're, they're, in, they're kids in a primary school. Oh, they, sorry, I didn't realise the primary yeah, school. Yes, primary school. Sorry, right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought no, it was like it an A-level politics. No, it wasn't class, politics. Was like, it wasn't right. politics. It was a primary school. <laughs> sorry, um, but this one really cheered me up. They didn't know who Piers Morgan was. Okay. Yeah. They didn't know who Arsene Wenger was. Did they know who Alistair Campbell was? Well, only because I was there. <laughs> right. Only because I was there. Uh, because I was, I was going... But, so my point is, is that, look, 92-97. I remember 1992 vividly because I was still a journalist, but I was covering it. But I was also, and still am, a very close friend of Neil Kinnock. Mm. I don't think... I didn't think Labour were going to win. Um, because the more that I'd gone around the country and the build-up to it, 
I just, I met too many people who were saying they were going to vote Tory, who I didn't expect to vote Tory. 97, I thought we were going to win, but I didn't think we were going to win as big as we did. Um, but look, the, the, the most obvious comparison is 1997 for these reasons. The Tories have been in for a very long time. Mm. There have been a lot of scandals. The country feels stuck. The Labour Party has gone through a process of change since Jeremy Corbyn. Um, so I think that's what feels more kind of fitting to the moment. But at the same time, I think there are other things going on that, that didn't happen back then. I think that... Uh, I think social media, I think the fact that the Tories, I don't, I, I've got no idea what the Tories are up to in terms of campaigning, mm. but it won't be pretty and it'll be very, very well funded. So I think, I think 97 is my short answer, but it is 2024 and it's very, very, it's a very different political landscape. So just to let you know, we will be taking some questions at the end. And if you're watching online as well, you can put questions in. Um, to take us back, Alistair, to 97 then, there's this metaphor that sometimes used that Tony Blair had to, was something about carrying a Ming vase across a room, um, that basically all he had to do was not drop the election because it was his to win. My, my, the sort of popular memory of 97 is things could only get better and parades down Downing Street and it was all sort of somewhat inspirational um, in a very British way. But was it like that at the time or, or, or was Blair actually, was it quite a cautious campaign or did, did it feel like a sort of a landslide in the making of a momentous moment. The, the Ming Vars thing was actually Roy Jenkins who said that. He said that his assessment of our campaign was right. that we, we, it was like we were carrying a Ming Vars and we were terrified of dropping it. Um, it's interesting, I th was interviewed recently for a documentary. Somebody's making a documentary called 1996. It's mainly about football, I right. think. This is um, sort of last, the Oasis and Yeah, and the all, Euros, all the and Gaza. And all stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot about Gaza and... Uh, so I was interviewed for it. So I thought, the night before the interview, I thought, well, I bet I'll go and check my diaries just to sort of, you know, flick through. So I read through them. And of course, even my sort of institutional memory, because it is of 1997, you know, we were completely clear about what we wanted to do. We were in control. Mm. Everything was going well. I read my diary. It was a fucking nightmare. <laughs> it was like, you know, nothing was going right. It was all, people were falling out mm. with scandals. So I think that, I didn't think, on the night of the election itself, um, Tony and I were up in Sedgefield, and we'd got to the, the count, where Tony, Tony, Tony's constituency count, and we, we were told we'd got about an hour to kill before the result. And we were watching the TV, and I, I'll never forget this. It was like we were winning in seats where we hadn't even campaigned. Mm. There was one moment where this Labour MP came on, and Tony said, who is that? Because <laughs> we, we, it was in a place we hadn't expected to win at all. So that only came at the end. And that's why I say I, I remain, I think it's right to be cautious about predicting landslides or anything else because, you know, it can go the other way. It mm. can go the other way. The campaign felt pretty good. Mm. But, you know, this, this 28 billion thing that's going on at the moment where I just wish to hell they'd sort the answer out and, and fix mm. it. We had a the situation, nobody will remember this, but in 1997, the first couple of weeks of the campaign, we had this whole big thing about air traffic control privatization. That became the big story. Nobody will remember this, right? But it became the big thing for about four or five days. Mm. So you, you can never quite tell what's going to flare up in a campaign. Campaigns, people can make mistakes as well as do things well. So no, it didn't feel easy at all. It felt really, really hard right to the end. Mm. 
It's interesting. I'll bring us up to the present now. As you say, that, that's all ancient history in some ways, but, but fascinating to compare. But you mentioned the media. I'd actually push back a little bit on that from, a, from, a, from a, my vantage point. Certainly, I think Starmer's done pretty well to uh, get on with the Murdoch media, as, as Blair did as well in 96, famously. Um, and I also think that even the parts of the media that will go for him have struggled thus far to lay a glove on him. I always think about that. Do you remember that ridiculous story the Mail did about the donkey? Yeah. Oh, the donkey, The yeah. donkey, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was sort of a story about the, this great sort of... Do people know about the donkey? Do you want to explain no? to us about the donkey? Well, it's the donkey sanctuary. Right. So, Keir Starmer um, had a mum who was spent a lot of her... She had Stills disease. She was very ill a lot of his childhood. Um, and she liked to sit outside of the back and look in this field, and, and, and he eventually got the field so that he could save this donkey sanctuary. Mm. Um, which, if you think about it, is quite a nice story about a nice working-class boy doing something nice for his mum. The male turned it into a whole thing about how he was like a sort of property speculator, <laughs> you know, trying to buy it, trying to portray him as this sort of... So you're right, they didn't land the glove, but it doesn't mean they won't try. Um, I do think here's quite good at being elusive as a target. Mm. Um, and Tony was good at being elusive as a target as well. Tony went from being Bambi to Stalin in about six months. Um, so they, they haven't yet decided on how they're going to go for Keir, but that they will sure. is for sure. Where I think the change has been, I don't think the newspapers are nearly as important as they were for pretty obvious technological reasons. Mm. But they still, to my mind, disproportionately set the broader political agenda, certainly within the Conservative Party. And the Conservative Party, it seems to me, spend all their time talking to the Telegraph, the Mail, and to some extent the Times mm. and the Sun. That is where the conversation is taking place. And the public, well, let's not worry about them too much. So, and that then sets the broadcast agenda, which is where I still think a lot of people consume. Yes. And even if people say, well, I consume my politics online, which lots of people do, the stuff that is being fed towards them, a lot of it is still being channeled through what a newspaper... Yes, yeah, it's BBC clips, it's talk yeah. TV clips. Well, it's like tonight, you know, the news is actually leading on an interview that Piers Morgan has done with, yeah. with uh, Rishi Sunak. Which no one will watch live, no. or few people, but they'll see clips of it, something will go yeah. viral. And I, and I have to say, it's like, I don't, have people heard about this interview? So on the one, there's two big stories coming out of it. The first is... Rishi Sunak has admitted that he's not met uh, the, the health service pledge that he made when he did his five priorities. And the second thing is Keir, um, Keir Starmer, Piers Morgan making a thousand pound bet that no refugees will go to Rwanda, okay? And rather ill-advisedly, in my view, Rishi Sunak seems to have taken the bet by shaking Piers Morgan's hand. Alistair, is it fair to say ill-advisedly is a slight understatement on well, your part there? <laughs> you now, well, the, the, the thing I'd say in Piers Morgan's defence, even though he regularly calls me a liar, um, I think that might have to something, do something with the sort of fact that I'm a bit pissed off that he was hacking my phone while he was the editor. Um, Shots fired. What? Shots fired, I'd say. <laughs> so, but, so I, if you think about this as a, as a thing, though, is that Piers Morgan, he sees his job and has done all his life as trying to get attention for himself and his TV channel now, mm. okay? Rishi Sunak's job is to be the Prime Minister 
and lead the country. So when I say ill-advised, don't help him, Morgan, do his job at the detriment of you doing your job, which I'm afraid is what happened. And I could feel that from the ripple. People immediately think, oh my God, did he really do that? Well, he did. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents with the code squared. Simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Well, it didn't strike me as great politics, and, and that actually was going to be my next question anyway, which is, is Rishi Sunak as bad as at politics as he as seems, he to, seems be, to be, and if so, why? <laughs> well, I tell you what, you've got to be very, very, very particular to think that the place to announce that you're scrapping HS2 is the Tory party conference in Manchester. That takes a political wizardry <laughs> that I cannot quite grasp. Um, and also, he's got... Look, we, the, the thing about politicians is we're all human beings. We, we, we try to make them what we want them to be. So people will say, why can't Keir Starmer be a bit more charismatic? Yeah. Why can't Rishi... You could, you know, why can't Rishi Sunak be taller? Well, he can't, right? Why can't he be less rich? Well, because he likes making loads of money, or his wife does. So, you know, they are what they are, but he does seem... I, I think that... I was a journalist when Mrs Thatcher was Prime Minister, right? And this goes, you know, more broadly, I think that there probably has been a diminution of the political gene pool. Fewer and fewer mm. people think about going to politics for all sorts of reasons. I hope you guys think about going to politics. I've got a young group down here, by the way. It's just to indicate to the older people at the back. Um, the young ones got here really early. Um, but I think that 
I'm not sure that Rishi Sunak would have got into Maggie's cabinet. Right. I think he might have got a job as a junior minister. But I think that's... I'm, I don't want to be personal, I don't want to be rude, but I kind of think that's his level. Um, <laughs> sorry, I hope that wasn't personal and rude. But that is, I mean, that is, a broad, that is an issue that is much broader than Rishi Sunak. The, the calibre yeah. of... And it's partly because we've been through about three sets of Tory politicians at this yeah. point. Yeah. So we are sort of... And, the, and Johnson, who... Terrible human being. But he threw out people like Rory Stewart, Ken Clark, you know, David Gore. People who you could at least look at and think, I can imagine them as cabinet ministers. Mm. I don't think they're ridiculous people. So he, he got rid of all them. So now, I mean, honestly, there are people who have been, you know, just, just think, we live in a country where for the rest of her life, Liz Truss will get an allowance for the fact that she was the prime minister. Liz Truss, just remember this, she will be at the Cenotaph every year. See, I think that's a curse, though. <laughs> well, yeah, but I think what she'll it? hate it. Yeah, but she probably, though, she will love it. She'll love it because it'll be her reminder so I just think that's absurd. And, but if I could think back to the Thatcher Major time, right? And it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, John Major, when he came on the podcast, I remember sitting there thinking, I used to be vile about this guy. And then I think, God, I wish he was back. <laughs> you know, even Theresa May, I think, I wish she was back. I mean, what's happened to me? So, um, so I think there has been a diminution. Um, but the truth is, it, it, you don't need that many really, really good people. You need a few mm. really, really good people. And then you need a, a very large cohort of good, strong, competent people. But I feel at the moment we, don't, we neither have the really good people nor the competent cohort. And it's, it's terrible. It's terrible. They've got to go. They've got to go. And then I hope, I hope that Labour can come in and really give the country a sense of energy and direction and change because... I mean, these guys, their generation. I, I was in a school the other day, right? And this girl, she was about 15. And she actually got a laugh. She didn't mean to get a laugh. She got a laugh in the classroom. But I felt really sad by what she said. She said, she said has politics always been this bad? And I, I just thought, that's all she's known. I said, well, what was your first memory of politics? She said it was my parents arguing about Brexit. Mm. And I, I just think that since Brexit, this country has completely lost its way politically. So I think we'll, towards the end, we'll get back to a little bit of the more constructive stuff on, on what can be done there. But I just wanted to ask you a little bit about leadership, which is a great theme of your writing and podcasting, um, and Starmer. On the one hand, I think he's exhibited some quite strong qualities of leadership in terms of the way he's taken control of the party again, and he's, been quite, he's very ruthless. On the other hand, as you've alluded to, he doesn't... I don't think even he would say he's a hugely charismatic man. He doesn't give a resounding speech. Um, lots of people say they find him a bit dull and a bit boring. How do you assess him as a leader, his strengths and, and weaknesses? Well, I think the assessment you have to make is based upon what he's done to take the Labour Party from where it was. Um, now, accepted, he's had a lot of help from the Tories, OK? <laughs> but he's gone from a place where in 2019... People were really beginning to think as the Labour Party had its day. I remember doing an interview on the day, say, you know, on the day of the defeat, saying that no party has a divine right to exist. So he's gone from that to a place where now the criticism he gets is, you know, why isn't it absolutely blindingly obvious that there's going to be a massive landslide? Um, so I, I think you'd have to say 
that he's done a pretty good job at showing the change. Mm. Um, and I can remember after the Hartlepool by-election, he came round for a cup of tea, because you know, he lives quite near us, and he came round for a cup of tea, and, and I was in, you know, I'm quite kind of... Uh, and I that get, was the Nadir, really, wasn't it? It really was, yeah, and I was saying, you know, what, I, Keir, I don't understand, what is the strategy, what is the plan, I don't see what's going on. And he said, and, and, and I've seen him say this many, many times since, and I've seen other people say it, and it's the, it's the moment when I realised that I think, actually, he does have quite a strategic mind. It just works differently to the way that I define strategy. Mm. It doesn't mean that's right or wrong. Either of us are right or wrong. And he said this. He said, look, I've got to try to do, in one parliamentary term, three stages. First stage, show the Labour Party is not the Corbyn Party. It's changed. And people have got to understand that. Mm. OK. Now, here we are in pretty much Jeremy Corbyn territory. Hands up if you think the Labour Party has changed in the last few years. Okay, so that's pretty overwhelming. Yeah. Second stage, he said, show that the Conservatives are unfit to govern. <laughs> well, as you say, he may, he may have had With a bit of help. But I think, and also I do think, is, and it's true, he's not, he's not a Barack Obama orator. He's not a Bill Clinton, get the hairs on your neck, mm. standing up. But I think he's, both his speaking and his interviews and his performance in Parliament have all improved. And that's an important point as well, because he's, you know, he's, he's, he's not much younger than I am. Mm. He's getting on a bit, <laughs> right? So, so, but he has improved all of those things. But I think the third part, he then said, and then the third part is to show, if not them, why us? And that has to be about policy. Now, that, that's the bit that I think mm. they really need to kind of focus on and crank up now. And I think what they're doing is getting the negatives out of the way. I hope what they're doing, they've got these five missions. I hope those five missions, by the time of the election, turn into some pretty clear, concrete stuff that everybody knows and everybody understands. And the thing is, at the moment, I feel the country is, is it's really, in most elections, you've got an opposition and people are kind of, this definitely happened with Jeremy Corbyn. I think it happened with Neil back in 1992, you've got people who think, well, I might be tempted, but I'm going to try, I want to find reasons not to vote for them. Mm. I think with Labour at the moment, if they could just tap, you know, be a bit less defensive, I think the country's looking for reasons to vote for them. Mm. And that's the, it's a different dynamic. So give us the reasons to vote for. We, we, we had a friend, we go to France a lot, and we've got a friend out there who lives near where we go, and, and this guy, he's, he's British. But, but he's voted Tory all his life. Mm. And he says, I cannot vote Tory again. I cannot vote Tory. But he said, but, but Starmer has to give me a song to whistle to. And I thought it was a really good phrase. It was like, what is the song? I'm, forget the Tories. What am I whistling to? And uh, that's what I'd like to see in the next bit. But I, you use the word ruthless, by the way. Mm. And I think he is quite ruthless. And that is not to be underestimated in politics. Well, he's also, as you pointed out, he is more strategic than people give him credit for. I think he worked out quite early on that it was going to be good politics to be ruthless with the, le with the Corbynite left yeah. when, when there was a clear crossing of the, the boundaries he'd set. And so he's not been afraid to do it really from day one. Yeah, yeah. Listen, you know, Tony was seen as a pretty strong, bold leader in lots of different ways, but would Tony have actually expelled Jeremy Corbyn from the party? Well, he never did. Mm. Um, but go back to 97 for a moment. There was a lot of money in the kitty then, or a lot more money in the kitty then. And so Blair and Gordon Brown could lay out basically improving public services through spending, which they then 
you know, to some extent did. Clearly, that's not the case anymore. So just structurally, he's at quite a disadvantage there. No, it's it? different. It's definitely different. I mean, look, we, we, I think that, look, the Tories are very, very good at writing long-term narratives, okay? So if you listen to them now, you say, well, 1997, we, we, you inherited a sort of golden age. It's absolute mm. bollocks. Um, there, was ma there was inflation back in the system and massive unemployment. So we had a lot of economic problems we had to hit. But what is true, not just economically, I'd say economically, socially, culturally, strategically, on the security front internationally, I think Labour, if they win, will inherit a much trickier wicket than we did. Mm. I really do think they will. But, and, and I think there's two things I'd say about that. One, that is why you do have to have a sense of a long-term vision um, and be clear about what that is and what sort of time frame you're talking about. The country will listen to somebody, even though they know it takes two elections, they'll listen to people talking about 10 years. You know, a decade to do this, a decade to do that. Um, and the second thing I'd say is that when, if and when Labour get in, you have to have, you get energy, you get momentum through change. That, that will, you know, that, the thing about the, the sort of flag waving in Downey Street and what have you, you do have moments that can give you a sense of this is change, this gives you energy, this gives you momentum. And during the period, because the truth is, in our political system, change does take time. Mm. Turn around the health service, it's going to take a long time. The, he talks about growth through reform of the planning system. That is not going to be easy. So you're going to have to have, alongside that, what I call cost-neutral campaigning and policy issues. And the one for me that I think really lends itself to Keir Starmer's personality and to Labour Party values is actually about trying to restore values in public standards in public life. Right. I think I think that I think the the Labour Party underestimate the power that there is in saying to the public, you know what, things to, saying to that girl, no politics wasn't always this bad. Politics doesn't always have to be this bad. We are going to restore basic standards in public life. And I would love it, for example, if he stood up and said, you know what, John Major, he was right when he talked about the need for the Nolan principles. He was right when he talked about we should have an expectation of honesty in public life. There should be openness. There should be transparency. We should be here to serve, not to help ourselves with all this. I mean, the levels of corruption that are happening in our politics now, I am staggered. I'm staggered that with one or two exceptions, this stuff going up in the Teesside and the Freeport stuff mm. at the moment, is happening with next to no debate. And look, there was a report last week saying that they haven't proven corruption. But they've certainly established governance systems that simply aren't working. So I think if he were to stay, stand up and say all that and then say and mean it, if a single minister in a Labour government offends any one of those seven Nolan principles, they are out. And then he has to do it. And I think, that would, I think it would transform people's perception of politics. At the moment, you know, I, I've spent all my life defending politics, and the book really is a defense of politics, mm. okay? But at the moment, when somebody says to me, I was at this school I went to today in Dagenham, I arrived a bit early, and I went to this cafe for a, just to get a cup of coffee, and there's a guy sitting next to me, he recognized me, starts talking, what have you, and he said, I mean, the trouble is, they're all in it up to their necks. They're all in it for themselves. And now people have said that about politics forever, okay? Mm. And I, I've always argued that it's not true. But I kind of look at the recent 
government, and I, and I get why he's saying it. So Labour, I think, can change that. So I would say, go for the cultural stuff. Mm. You know, go for the changing standards in public life. And I also think, by the way, things like the arts and culture, which are so often being seen as kind of like... Melvin Bragg made this speech in the House yeah, of Lords this week. It was really good. And he said, mm-hmm. you know, arts and culture aren't the cherry on the cake. They are the cake. And I think Britain, you know, we've had all this guff from Johnson and Trust about world beating this and world beating that. You know, we've got an army now that you can fit inside the bloody Etihad. You know, and he's talking about, I mean, it's just nonsense. And then he says he'd sign up for conscription. Did you see that? I mean, so I think that we, where we can be world beating is if we can restore the values, genuine respect for rule of law and democracy and all that, but also in culture, we can be a cultural superpower. So that's the sort of vision I want to see from Keir. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by myself, Connor Boyle, and edited by Tom Hall. Don't forget, there's two more installments of that great discussion with Alistair available right now for Intelligence Squared members. Sign up and you'll get the members-only exclusive part three as well. Head over to intelligencesquared.com membership to get all that right away right now, or hit subscribe on Apple for just the audio. And if you want to keep up with everything going on at Intelligence Squared, do sign up to our newsletter. Head over to intelligencesquared.com to get the heads up on all our live events coming up, and members can peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue too, featuring some of the world's great minds. That's all over at intelligencesquared.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world... And whatever you're doing, right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.